This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Uterine fibroids are the most common tumor of the female reproductive tract, and women who are approaching menopause are at greatest risk for them. In most cases, they don't produce symptoms, and only a minority of women require treatment. The topic for today's podcast is uterine fibroids, and we'll discuss how fibroids can be diagnosed, their most common symptoms, who requires treatment, and the various treatment options. Our guest is Dr. Elizabeth Stewart from the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Abby, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's always a pleasure to talk about fibroids. Well, let's start at the basics. Pathologically, what's going on in fibroids? So fibroids arise from smooth muscle cells in the uterus. It's thought that multiple kinds of smooth muscle, myometrial cells and vascular smooth muscle combine. But really the defining characteristic of fibroids is that the cells produce increased amount of extracellular matrix. So that's why they're fibrous. There's more mortar between the cellular bricks. And uh, literally when you're doing fibroid surgery, you can feel the fibroids. They're more fibrous. And this also probably contributes to the pressure women feel from the enlargement of the uterus. So they have a different consistency than a typical uterus? They do. And I think that what's most remarkable is a variation in size for fibroids. So sometimes even a one or a two centimeter fibroid can be a cause of substantial heavy menstrual bleeding, especially if it's in a submucosal location. But there are also fibroids that can grow to be the size of a basketball before they come to clinical attention, or literally women can have 50 or 60 fibroids within a single uterus. So commonly we talk about the fibroid uterus by making the analogy to pregnancy. So we say she has a 20 week size fibroid uterus, meaning it comes up to the belly button or it's a 13 week size fibroid uterus. So it arises out of the pelvis so you can feel it abdominally. But these days when we often diagnose other lesions uh, via microscopy or, or advanced imaging, it is amazing that something can get to be 10 centimeters without being recognized. Mm-hmm. Is there any idea or thoughts as to why some of these become so large and others remain small? Well, there are several things that govern fibroid growth, but we don't really understand the detailed uh, way in which those can be controlled. But first of all, steroid hormones clearly play a role, estrogen and progesterone. In contrast to the earliest teachings, progesterone is probably the more important hormone. Estrogen causes induction of the progesterone receptor, but it's really progesterone that causes growth and ablation of progesterone can cause regression. I think the second thing is that most fibroids arise by somatic mutations within the uterus. The most common somatic mutation called the MED12 mutation tends to result in small fibroids. A less common one called HMGA2 tends to produce bigger fibroids. 
And since fibroids are clonal events within the same uterus, you can literally have two or three different somatic mutations within the same uterus. So right now we haven't taken mutational status and been able to map it to specific treatment outcomes, but there's a lot of work on individualized medicine for fibroids currently. You mentioned earlier subucosal fibroids. Are there different types of fibroids? Yes, absolutely. So again, if you think of the uterus as being a muscular container, that the outer surface of that is the serosa. And then along the inner surface of that container is the endometrium. So the endometrium is a layer that shed during menstruation and that develops in pregnancy. And the more fibroids are in that submucosal uh, layer, the more likely they are to have heavy menstrual bleeding as a result. And also the more likely they are to be a problem for women trying to get pregnant. So um, knowing size and location are key determinants of what you may do for fibroids. Well, realizing that we may not know uh, if women who have very small fibroids actually have fibroids, any idea how common these are? Well, there's estimates that up to three quarters of all women will have fibroids. It's really amazing. And there's been some population-based ultrasound studies that confirm this. Um, Now, not all of those women will have symptomatic fibroids. So just because you see a fibroid on ultrasound doesn't mean it's going to be a problem. But I've also seen women where their healthcare providers don't appreciate how common it is. And so if you have a 30-year-old African-American woman present with anemia, I've seen some of those ladies undergo a colonoscopy before anybody's thought to say, wait a minute, fibroids are extraordinarily common in African-American women and develop at an earlier age. So maybe we should check and see whether she has fibroids before we go through the rest of the anemia workup, because this is going to be very likely to be a positive in this particular patient. You specifically mentioned African-American women. Are there racial disparities in uh, fibroids? There are. And so I said African-American, but it seems to be important of any woman of African descent. So for example, in Minnesota, we see a lot of Somali women and they appear to have increased fibroid risk as well. So any woman from Africa or of African heritage appears to have an increased risk of having fibroids. There are several things that compound this increased incidence and prevalence. And that's that Uh, women of African descent are more likely to have severe fibroid symptoms. They're more likely to have an early presentation. So again, in your introduction, you talked about how fibroids become more common as women get into their late 40s and approach menopause. And that's true. But women of African descent develop fibroids at least six years early. So it's not uncommon to find women in their 20s and early 30s of African descent who have clinically significant fibroids. Hmm. So other than the racial differences, are there other risk factors for women getting fibroids? Or are they more common in some than others? Race is a big risk factor. Uh, nulliparity is also a big risk factor that, in fact, one of the 
few things we know that can help you prevent future fibroids is having a term delivery. When you think about it going from a uterus that's the size of a pear, and after nine months, it's big enough to hold a eight pound fetus. And then within weeks, it goes back to being that pear shaped organ. There's a lot of involution going on. So that having a pregnancy decreases your risk of fibroids and time since last delivery is a risk factor for fibroids. There's also some lifestyle factors. Having a normal BMI is associated with decreased fibroid risk. Um, having a, a healthy diet rich in fruits and vegetables and low in red meats is associated with decreased fibroid risk. So again, since three out of four women will ultimately be diagnosed with fibroids, that there are a lot of women out there, but there are some things that can clue you in that this woman may be at special risk. Mm -hmm. When fibroids become symptomatic, what symptoms do they typically produce? The most common fibroid symptom is heavy menstrual bleeding. And this can be either a normal cycle length, like five days, but such heavy bleeding that uh, you can't do your normal work. I've had uh, women who are bus drivers who've had trouble making it through their route during their period. And I've had women who are surgeons who've had to go to their department chair and say, I need to switch some OR days here, but not being willing to talk about why it's happening. Heavy menstrual bleeding is the most common and probably also the most consequential given the high risk of iron deficiency anemia. Is but the, the, is the other two big categories of fibroid symptoms are pain, both menstrual and non-menstrual pain, and then symptoms due to the uterine enlargement. Since we've talked about the fibroid uterus being enlarged like a pregnant uterus, it can press on the bladder, it can press on the bowel, it can cause abdominal distension, it can cause difficulties with intercourse. Is the heavier menses primarily due to the fact that these just increase the surface area of the endometrium, or is there some other reason? No. So that's not the only explanation. Now, clearly some women with fibroids have a very enlarged endometrial cavity, but there are women with normal sized cavities and intramural fibroids that have profound bleeding. Probably there are some molecular explanations uh, that angiogenic growth factors are increased in fibroids. And uh, since fibroids have that increased amount of extracellular matrix, they can sequester a lot of growth factors. So that's one issue. The vasculature of the fibroid uterus is different. So the vasoconstriction that happens at the end of menstruation to kind of stop the flow is probably defective in some women. So it's likely that there are multiple reasons, but it's not just as simple as the cavity is bigger. So it's a bigger surface area. So it's not as simple as that. No, it would be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Fibroids are benign, but do they ever have a potential for uh, malignant transformation? So I think many fibroid advocates are now challenging that assertion that fibroids are benign. And so we're tending to say that they're not malignant or pre-malignant, because I think many women feel that even if they're just causing heavy menstrual bleeding, that's not a benign condition as far as the woman is concerned. And we think it's rarely, if ever, that fibroids evolve into a malignancy. But the real problem is if you have a mass in the uterus, 
that there aren't perfect imaging characteristics that can say this is a fibroid and this is a sarcoma. That does produce some diagnostic dilemmas. The good thing is that if you have an absolutely typical fibroid on MR imaging, the negative predictive value of that not being a sarcoma is very high. Mm -hmm. So there are still some women who need to undergo surgical intervention because you can't tell, is it a fibroid or is it something more serious? But that's primarily an issue for women that present with a uterine mass after menopause. Okay. I want to ask you a little bit about pregnancy and fibroids. Does pregnancy influence the growth of fibroids or does, do fibroids affect pregnancy? They're both true. Women with fibroids are more at risk for some pregnancy complications, such as preterm labor or placental abnormalities. But the important thing to know is that with most fibroid treatments, it doesn't get rid of that risk. So there are risks to fibroids, but there are risks to fibroid treatments too. And so nobody should just say, we got to take these fibroids out to make for a healthy pregnancy, since some of the fibroid treatments commit you to a C-section, which causes other problems down the line. And pregnancy clearly can influence fibroids, since we talked before about them being sensitive to estrogen and progesterone and those hormones increase markedly during pregnancy. Fibroids can grow during pregnancy, but it's important to know that not all fibroids grow. If you look at it, about a third of fibroids grow, about a third of fibroids stay the same, and about a third shrink. But it's the third that grows that is brought to your attention and my attention and causes us to worry during pregnancy. Okay. Well, in many cases, we can diagnose these by physical examination. Is that reliable? Do we ever need imaging to uh, realize that this is a fibroid? We typically do proceed with imaging because again, you suspect fibroids when on pelvic exam, you feel a lumpy, bumpy uterus, but you can't rule out the possibility that maybe what you're feeling is an ovarian cancer or a big cystadenoma or something Mm -hmm. like that. So typically we will proceed with initial imaging to make a diagnosis. I think the real hot question in the field is how much is serial imaging useful once you've made a diagnosis? At least in my office, I don't necessarily do serial imaging on everyone because there are women that are asymptomatic and there are women whose fibroids may regress. But certainly if somebody's had a treatment option, gone through a surgery or an interventional procedure, then I find the imaging is more useful to kind of look at new fibroids forming and making sure that we intervene at an earlier point, especially if they've had a surgery previously. Yeah. When you decide imaging is necessary, is an ultrasound adequate or or are there cases where you may need a CT or MR scan? So ultrasound is adequate for probably about 90% of women. That CT really isn't that useful for fibroids because you can't really distinguish where the fibroids are versus the myometrium. So MR and MR with gadolinium contrast is usually the favored modality if you're looking for fibroids. Mm -hmm. And that's chiefly useful if you're planning some kind of 
interventional therapy. If you're a surgeon and you're thinking about doing a laparoscopic or a hysteroscopic surgery, if you're a radiologist and thinking about is the patient a candidate for uterine artery embolization or focused ultrasound surgery. And then it's also rarely used for that perimenopausal or postmenopausal woman where you're trying to figure out, is this a worrisome lesion that is a sarcoma, or is this just a fibroid that's maybe been there for 30 years, but since she hasn't uh, gotten imaging since her last baby was born, maybe it's just an ordinary fibroid. So once you've determined that this is a fibroid, can they, and you need to follow up, can they be followed with ultrasound or do you need to get an annual MR scan? No, I think you can usually follow with ultrasound or sometimes even with exam. If you find an incidental fibroid because you're looking for an ovarian cyst or or as a reason for pain and the woman isn't having pain, isn't having heavy menstrual bleeding, I don't think you're committed to following that patient with imaging. Mm -hmm. All right, let's turn to treatment. What determines when a woman should have consideration of treatment for fibroids? Symptoms usually drive treatment. So again, if a woman is asymptomatic, then there's typically not a reason to treat. That deciding the right treatment is very difficult because uh, you have to take into consideration what her symptoms are. Is it just heavy menstrual bleeding? Is it the size? Is it both? You need to be thinking about the size, number, and location of her fibroids. And you also need to be taking into account what her plans are for pregnancy. Uh, There are some treatment options that have impact on the ovaries, so might not be ideal for the woman who's trying to optimize future pregnancy, but could be a great option for the woman who doesn't want pregnancy or who's in that category where she wants to keep that door open, but may never choose to go through the door. Mm -hmm. Well, I know in the past, surgical treatment, often with a hysterectomy, has been a very commonly used management technique. What's the current thinking on surgery now? The thinking about hysterectomy is changing markedly. That when I was training, and even when I started out training uh, young gynecologists, the teaching was, well, you have symptomatic fibroids, you don't want any more children, why not have a hysterectomy? It's kind of a one and done procedure, and then you don't have to worry about any new fibroids forming. And a lot of research, in, and particularly some of the research we've done at Mayo Clinic, is changing that mindset that first uh, findings from both the Nurses Health Study and the Rochester Epidemiology Project showed that when you had a hysterectomy and removed the ovaries, there were substantial morbidity, including an increase in all-cause mortality following hysterectomy with oophorectomy. So given how common heart disease is and the impact of ovaries on uh, heart disease, you were doing more harm than good. But even over the last decade, we've continued to do research looking at hysterectomy with ovarian conservation. And even if you have a hysterectomy and keep both ovaries, there's a substantially increased risk of coronary artery disease, hypertension, obesity, mood disorders, so that while it may solve your fibroid problems, it may set you up for late life morbidity. Well, I understand there are some new pharmacologic treatments 
available. Can you describe those? Absolutely. So medical therapy for fibroids has primarily been various contraceptive formulations. And again, birth control pills can decrease heavy menstrual bleeding. Hormone releasing IUDs can be very effective at decreasing bleeding, but we really haven't had anything that was more powerful than contraceptive steroids or medications that would work on the size-related complaints, except for medications that gave severe menopausal side effects. So many doctors have had experience with GnRH agonists like Lupron or Zolodex and, and inducing a medical type menopause. So that was really for many years, all that we had. But in 2020, we had our first oral GnRH antagonist combination approved. And in 2021, there's a second one. So we have oral medications that give relief to both of the fibroid symptoms. They're approved for up to 24 months of use. So you not only have the oral GnRH antagonist, so you don't have that flare effect with the older medications, but they're given in combination with very low doses of estrogen and progestin. So more akin to what menopausal women take if they have hypoestrogenic symptoms. So by turning off the central drive and adding in uh, low doses of hormones, uh, women have very few hypoestrogenic symptoms, but yet the fibroids are uh, deprived of the steroid hormones that they need to cause the heavy bleeding and the size-related complaints. So do they just stop the growth of the fibroid or do they actually cause some shrinkage? They cause shrinkage. So um, average is about 10% volume reduction that again, in the clinical trials, about 80 to 85% of women had improvements in their menstrual bleeding, but uh, actually a sizable number actually uh, had no periods. So a uh, very profound differences in bleeding with these mm -hmm. medications. Okay. Well, Abby, can you uh, give us maybe two or three key points which summarize our discussion on fibroids? The first summary point I would give is that fibroids are exceedingly common and especially in women of African descent. So um, that those are the women in your practice you want to be thinking, does she have fibroids? I think the second point is that there are multiple conservative options for treatment. And given the increasing data that there are long-term risks to hysterectomy, working with a woman to find an appropriate alternative to hysterectomy may be important. And I think the third point is this is a rapidly evolving field that we didn't do research in fibroids for many years. And a lot of the discoveries about the biology and new treatment options are relatively new. So um, it's important to update yourself on what's happening with fibroids, especially if your practice has a, a large component of young women. We've been discussing uterine fibroids with Dr. Elizabeth Stewart from the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Mayo Clinic. Ebby, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you for the invitation. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.